Would you turn with me in God's holy word to 1 Kings chapter 8 as we continue our study of the coming glory leading to Bethlehem. Last time we saw God's glory descend upon the newly constructed tabernacle, the tent in the wilderness, the tent of meeting. And now God's glory descends upon the newly completed temple building in Jerusalem. 1 Kings 8 is a long chapter. Try to decide what portion to read. I think I'm going to try to read it all. I'll try to break it up for you a bit as we go through it. 1 Kings chapter 8. We give our attention to God's glorious word. 1 Kings 8 of verse 1. Now Solomon, and boys and girls, remember Solomon is the third king in Israel. First was Saul, then was David, and then is David's son, King Solomon. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple. To the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when he came out of when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple. But your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. 
And there I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon prays. Verse 22, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you, you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it this day with your hand. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way and they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built? Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place, and may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. Now what follows are seven different scenarios that King Solomon sets before the Lord. Seven situations of need. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, When they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague on his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, 
For they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgression which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be opened to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call on you. For you separated them from all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought out, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord, and Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls, and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord 
On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed their king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. God's holy word. Let's bow in prayer. O living God who heard the prayer of Solomon, how much more have you heard the prayers of our Lord Jesus? And now in Christ's name, we too join hearts with your saints throughout the ages to ask for your blessing and your help. By a single word from heaven, our hearts are saved. And we pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, last Sunday we saw, as I mentioned, God's glory filled the tabernacle was a a milestone in the life of God's people. That now God had a a tent made, a tent of meeting, and now he filled it in a glorious way to signal that he would live among his people. This morning we come to another milestone. Now a temple building is built, and God's glory fills it. The weeks ahead we hope to trace the coming glory all the way to Bethlehem, and if God wills, beyond that even to a new creation, new heavens and a new earth. Some people may think history is boring, but that's only when they don't know it's their history. And this, brothers and sisters, is your history. This is your story. This is the story of the church. And this is the story of the progress of revelation. God revealing, God unveiling, God showing more of who he is and what he wants to do with his people, what he wants to be for them. The whole story of the Bible is a single theme. It's a single thread that runs through the whole book of the Bible. This is part of the joy of of covenant theology, of reformed theology, that we recognize that, that the story of Scripture is one unified story, one plan from the beginning to the end. And the plan is this, that after we sinned and and God's glory shrunk back from the earth, as it were, and Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and that glory was lost, that the whole rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible is the story of the glory coming to God's people, the presence, the glorious majesty of God dwelling with his people until it fills a whole new creation. That's the story of the Bible, and so we're glad to ponder that story. This morning we see that God graciously fills the Jerusalem temple with his glory. And I'd like you to think about what that temple is. It is a temple. <clears throat> this temple is, first of all, a permanent building. Secondly, built by a promised king. Thirdly, a pledge of forgiveness. And fourthly, it's a summons to all the people of the world to come. So the temple, what is it? A permanent building built by a promised king as a pledge of forgiveness, calling all of the world. Those four things. Well, What's new here, right? That's, as, you, as you trace the history of redemption, the, the history of revelation, there's always progression. There's always increase. So when you come now further into the storyline, you have to ask, what's the new thing? What's the new thing? What's the progress we're making now today by moving from tabernacle to temple? And maybe it's pretty obvious to you. There's a big difference between a tent and a house. Camping in a tent 
is fun for a few days for some of you, but returning to your house, that's, that's heaven, right? There's, there's progress. If your cousin from Alabama comes out and pitches his tent at the state park, then you think he's staying for a few days, but if he buys a lot next to yours and hires an architect and a builder, you know he's going nowhere fast. He's moving in. Well, God is moving in, right? Now, in the wilderness, God's people lived in tents. But now they've come to the promised land, and they lived in, the, in this land flowing with milk and honey. They live in houses. And now God will live in a house. The tabernacle was a portable shelter made of materials that could be carried easily, could be disassembled. The temple is built out of wood and stone, and you can't take it apart. It has foundations. And so the story is taking a giant leap forward now from tent to building, from tabernacle to temple. God will have a permanent dwelling among his people. God will put down roots in Jerusalem. And so chapter 8 begins with this great procession, Solomon leading this movement of the ark. David already brought the ark into Jerusalem, but it was at a lower place. And now it's being brought up the hill to the temple. And so there's a procession, a, a parade of sorts, of leading this ark up to its resting place. It's a glorious scene. You can even read in Second Chronicles, another telling of the story. And there you read that they had a massive choir, orchestra, 120 trumpets of the priests that were blasting forth. And it was quite an event. Now, verse 2 tells us in 1 Kings here that it was the seventh month. And they were having a feast. And we know from the Bible what feast was celebrated in the seventh month. So one we were looking at in the Gospel of John, the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember where every year in the seventh month, God's people had to live in tabernacles or booths. They had to live in these little shelters made out of tree branches in order to remember that God brought us through the wilderness. When we used to live in tents... How fitting it is now as God's people are remembering the wilderness wandering where God provided and brought them to a permanent dwelling in the land of promise. How fitting it is that God's ark should be moved on this occasion from the tent to the building. God will have a central sanctuary among his people. And the ark will at last come to rest in the holy of holies in the temple. And what a, what a glorious moment here. They build the building, but of course they can't make God live in the building, right? But here, in the midst of this glorious celebration, all these animal sacrifices, all this music. In fact, in Second Chronicles it says, right as the priests are blasting these trumpets and the choir is singing out, blessing God's name, that at that moment the glory of God fills the temple in such a way they can't go on. Their work is over. Priests can't do anything, can't get near the mighty glory of God. His majesty has filled the temple. And the living God is signaling, I am willing. I will live among you. And then Solomon speaks those words in verses 12 and 13. The Lord said he would dwell in the, in the thick cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in Forever. Forever. So what's the progress? Progress is a permanent dwelling. 
and God is making his intentions known. Maybe a father asks a young man who's dating his daughter, what are your intentions with regard to my daughter? Maybe he asks that after been dating a long time and he doesn't see anything happening. See, there's no hint towards marriage. Or, or maybe better off, he asks the, the son the first time he wanted to ask out his daughter, what are your intentions with my daughter? But you see, he wants to know where's this going. Well, God here, in, in causing his glory to descend upon the temple, is making his intentions known. He's not dating us for a while and then will leave us. He's going to dwell among his people forever. Forever. That is his intention. Now, it's not that he will dwell in the temple forever. This temple will be destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. A new temple will be built after God's people come back from captivity. And that temple will be greatly enhanced under King Herod. And that temple will be destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. But God intends to do with his people forever. Those temple buildings will by that time have fulfilled their function. And God will be further down the line of redemptive revelation towards that day when he will fill a new heavens and a new earth with his presence. In fact, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, that glorious new city, doesn't even have a temple. The whole city is the temple. In fact, we learn the whole creation will be God's temple. God will live with his people in the new heavens and new earth, and his majesty, his glory will fill our lives and will satisfy us abundantly and will be with us forever and ever and ever. The glory of God and of the Lamb. Now, doesn't that sound good? Don't you get tired of living in a tent? And I don't just mean camping. I mean, your entire life is a life of living in a tent, isn't it? Because you're always living in a state of impermanence, Right? This world is shaky. Things are always changing. Your body's getting older and decaying. Governments come and go. Nations rise and fall. Our own society deteriorates. Nothing is stable. Our possessions and our homes, they need constant repair. They grow old. We get rid of them. Loved ones are called away from us, out of this world. Relationships are lost. People fail us. We fail people. There is nothing stable, is there? Don't your heart, doesn't your heart long for permanence? Aren't we glad to come home from a camping trip to a house? Well, won't we be glad to move from this pilgrimage that we're on, this tent life, into the permanent dwelling of the new Jerusalem? new heavens and a new earth, the home that Christ is preparing for us. Now, that's our hope, but faith has not yet become sight. And so we look forward. And yet as we look forward, already now we do have permanence if we're united to Jesus Christ. Christ declared that he is the temple, right? He is God's dwelling place with us. If we have Christ, we have The one thing and the only thing that's permanent, we have fellowship with God. And through all the trials of this life, we we possess that reality that I have something permanent that no one can take from me. Fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. That's to be our confidence as we make our journey here below, as we camp along the way, so to speak, pitching our tents 
making our journey, enduring pain and loss and suffering. We press on because as Psalm 48 says, this is God, our God, forever and ever. This morning, we've all suffered losses, right? But if I ask you, what's the biggest loss you've suffered? What's the loss that weighs upon you today or fills your mind? What's the loss? And you're maybe able to think about that very easily and say, this is the thing that bothers me. This is the loss that sorrows me. You are able to pray to the Lord Jesus Christ and to say, in the midst of this loss, would you lead me to confide more deeply in the permanence of your love and your fellowship? Lord Jesus, would you take, would you take the, the weakness, the shakiness, the, the things that I'm losing, would you, in the midst of these, lead me to reside more deeply in you? Christ will say, of course I will. Because that's the whole goal of redemptive history. To bring us to dwell in God forever. And already now we can begin more and more to taste of that glory. And to be satisfied in that glory. And to rest in that glory. And this is exactly the thing that God's up to in our lives. As he takes things from us, he's driving us to himself. So it's a permanent place. Secondly, this morning, this temple is not just a permanent building, but it's built by a promised king. God has found his rest now. His people found their rest, moved into their houses. Now the ark of God comes to its rest. It comes into a building. But how did God get to this place? Well, the answer is two kings, King David and King Solomon. And these two kings together portray for us what Christ will do. King David is a, a, a king of war. King David was a, was a man of war. He fought battles. He, he destroyed God's enemies. He, he brought rest to the church by defending the church and driving out her enemies. And it's on the basis of those victories of King David that now King Solomon will rule in peace. He won't fight battles. He will rule as the king of peace. And he will have extraordinary wisdom and extraordinary riches. And all the world will know of the fame of King Solomon. These two kings go together. Now Solomon recognizes this and he, he says that everything that's happened is the fulfillment of what God said to my dad, King David. And if you know that monumental chapter of Second. Samuel chapter 7. Then you remember how that was, that, that David said to Nathan the prophet, he said, look, I dwell in a house of cedar, and God's still living in a tent, the tabernacle? And Nathan says, oh, yeah, go build him a house. And then the word came to Nathan the prophet, said, no, 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 go tell David this. I've dwelt in the tabernacle all these years, wandered with my people wherever they were. Have I ever asked anyone to build me a house? God makes clear that he's not some needy deity. He's not some needy deity. He's not some, some gold or metal god who needs you to build him a shelter to keep him from rotting or, or washing away. He's the living God, as Solomon says. The highest heavens cannot contain you. 
David, you feel sorry for me because I don't have a house? Who do you think I am? I'm the Lord Almighty. And then God says to David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And by house, God means a dynasty, a family of kings. And then God says, and your son will build my house. I will build your house, David, and your house, your son, will build my house. And now that's come to pass. David's son Solomon has built God's house. God builds a house not because he needs one, but when he wants to extend his revelation now and show his people something more of his grace. And Solomon, in his prayer and before the people here, is glorying in this reality that God has kept his word. Did you hear what Solomon said? He said, what God said with his mouth, he did with his hand. What God said with his mouth, he did with his hand. God never speaks a word that he doesn't fulfill. And God has kept his word. You have kept what you promised your servant, David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Verse 24. God is a God of his word. God is a God of his word. It's important, isn't it, as we, as we travel down this road with our God, we have to believe he's a God of his word, right? We have to believe he's a God of his word. As God makes his intentions known to us and says, I'm going to live with you forever, then everything hangs on the trustworthiness of that word. Will God do what he said he will do? The gods of the world are not like that. They don't do what they promise. Satan is a liar, and by his lies, he murders, right? He, he lies and he entices, he makes promises, but they never are fulfilled. Instead, they lead to destruction. And so we can easily see promises broken by the gods of this world. The god of money makes promises. You'll have happiness and security, And then we look around and see lots of rich people who are terribly unhappy, have lost their family, have lost everything. Sexual immorality makes promises. Pornography tempts and says, look, you can have pleasure, you can be in control. But it leaves one empty and dried up. Anger and bitterness and vengeance make promises. Look, you you can have the pleasure of being angry and bearing a grudge. And you can protect yourself. No one's going to hurt you. But again, empty promises. The gods of this world are cruel. The gods of this world are cruel. They are liars. They have no love for you. And if you serve them, you'll be disappointed. But the ark was what? That ark that represented God's throne, right? That's what they were moving up the hill into the temple was the ark which represented the throne of God. And what was the ark? It was the ark of the covenant. And inside the ark were the tablets of the covenant. And what's the covenant, boys and girls? It's the promise. It's the relationship that God has promised us. It's the marriage. In which God said, We read at the beginning of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God. That's the declaration. I'm your God. I will be your God. 
And now the special promise that God made to David, a son who would build his house, is brought to fulfillment. But as I said, this temple didn't last forever. And so though the promise to David has an initial fulfillment in Solomon, David's son, building the house, the promise to David is actually of a different son, isn't it? A greater fulfillment. Remember what the angel said to Mary about the son that she would have? He will be great and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. But he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus Christ is David's greater son, and Jesus Christ is the greater temple and the greater temple builder. The reigns of David and Solomon are both fulfilled in Jesus. Christ is the mighty warrior who went to the cross and did battle, defeating Satan by dying for our sins, removing the basis of his accusations. And Christ, risen from the dead, ascending into heaven, taking the throne. Tonight we get to hear about that, Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand, God says. Taking the throne, he has triumphed over all wickedness, over all principalities and powers. He has won the battle. And now on the basis of that triumphant victory, he rules us in peace and wisdom like Solomon. Christ has secured God's loving presence with us forever. He has brought us rest. And if God kept his word back there, and if God kept his word at the cross, then we are to trust that God will keep his word to the last day when we'll inherit our new home of perfect permanence. And so growing up in Christ Jesus, here's the application. Growing up in Christ Jesus means learning to trust the word over the circumstance, learning to trust the promise over our feelings and emotions. We're all engaged for a battle living by faith and not by sight, right? And so faith is believing the word. And so you and I see a lot of things that disturb us. We endure circumstances that shake us. We, we feel things inside of us that seem overwhelming and inconvertible. And The calling of Scripture is to believe not my feelings, but to believe the word of the covenant Lord. If you are struggling today because you've been afraid, or you feel like things are hopeless, or you feel like no good could ever come out of this, then God's saying, I want you to pray and to work to believe what I've spoken, That for those who love me, who are called according to my purpose, all things are being worked together for your greatest good. And then Satan says, do you see any good coming out of this? I don't see any good. And then your emotions say, "I I don't feel any good. But God says to you, believe my promise. How many times in Israel's history did it look like God could never dwell among his people. A temple could never be built. God does what God promises. Don't put your trust in King David. He failed you. Don't put your trust in King Solomon. 700 wives and 300 concubines led astray to worship foreign gods. He failed you. 
But do trust in David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who never fails you. He's faithful in all of God's house. And though we are weak and feeble, Christ is our solid rock. And by his triumph at the cross, God's fellowship with us, our reconciliation to God is forever sealed upon the blood of Jesus and the covenantal oath. So it's a permanent house built by a promised king, but thirdly, it's a pledge of forgiveness. I mentioned there were seven scenarios in Solomon's prayer. Seven situations of need. How many of them were related to sin? Five of them. Five out of the seven need situations were, if your people sin, when they turn back, forgive them. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, there's one general one about when your people go to war, help them. And there's one general one when a foreigner calls on you, hear him. But all the rest are when your people sin, when they're defeated before an enemy because they've sinned, when there's no rain on the land because they sinned, when there's a famine because they sinned. When your people sin and they're taken captive to a foreign land, what does that tell you? It tells you that covenant Lord has not come to dwell among us because we're a good people. The glory of heaven should come down and this, and this be the prayer of Solomon? Not, Lord, your people are going to do this for you, and they're going to do this for you, and they're going to be this kind of people, they're going to do all this good. That's not what Solomon prays. Praise when your people sin against you, when your people fail you, when they betray you. And then if that wasn't astonishing enough, what does Solomon say? He says, after they do all these things to you, God, you, the God who loved them, who brought them a band of slaves out of Egypt, poured out your love upon them, gave them a home in the land of promise, have done all this good to them, and then when they betray you and they act treacherously, God, forgive them. Release them of their guilt. Really? Just let them go? What an astonishing request. You, the living God, stoop down from heaven to earth to love a people, and when they turn their backs on you, And then they realize they've done wrong and they come back to you. Just forgive them. How could Solomon dare to pray such a thing? Solomon is enabled to pray this prayer because the spirit of Christ is working in him. And he's causing Solomon to understand what the temple means. Temple is the place of grace and forgiveness. You see, you have to understand that the glory that comes down in the temple is not just God's glory. God's glory is everywhere. The glory that comes down on the temple is the glory of God's grace. It's God's glory being given to his people in mercy. And this temple building is going to be filled with blood sacrifice. Sacrifices that represent the atonement or the covering of sin. 
And on that basis, there's going to be incense offered, and, and the aroma is going to rise as the prayers of God's people. And then the priest is going to come out of the temple and lift up his hands and bless the people. There's going to be a, a, a glorious drama going on at this temple. It's going to be the most amazing show in town every day at the temple. Blood sacrifices, water washings, incense going up, blessings pronounced. And it's going to mean one thing. It's going to mean God announcing to his people that the way I'm going to live among you, the way we're going to be friends, is that I'm going to wash you of all your sins. And I'm going to send my son that his blood might be spilled to bear my wrath against your sin and to bring you peace with me forever. The temple is a proclamation of grace, of forgiveness. The temple was just a little picture pointing God's people forward to Jesus Christ, our mediator, who has borne the curse, set us free, brought us forgiveness. Now, being brought to the place of wanting that forgiveness is not always easy, is it? I mean, not only is this just incomprehensible that God's going to just forgive a people that betray him when they turn back. But what's amazing and sadly amazing is that God's people won't want to turn back from their sin. So in so many of these petitions that Solomon offers up, he's speaking not just about sin, but about the afflictions that come on God's people. When God dries up the heavens and it doesn't rain, when God sends them famine, when God sends them plagues, when God sends them enemies that carry them away captive, what are all those things? Those are disciplines. They're disciplines. They're afflictions to bring God's people low so that they'll look up and return to the Lord. I read somebody recounting the illustration that Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, used. He spoke about the painter, the premier painter who was working in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, high up on a platform, painting apparently the dome. And he, he was on that platform surveying his accomplishments so far, his work, and he was backing up and backing up and backing up looking at the proportions, inch by inch, backing up to, to observe what he had done and how things were going. And one of his assistants looked over and realized he's about to step off the edge of the platform to his death. And in an instant, you can imagine the mind racing what to do. If I yell out to the master painter, watch out, look back, he might look over his shoulder, stumble back and fall to his death. So the assistant took his paintbrush with paint on it and he flung it at the painting. Which, of course, infuriated the premier painter and sent him charging forward in a rage to strangle the assistant. Only afterwards coming to realize that the ruin of his painting was the rescue of his life. And that's what God so often does in the lives of his people. That he brings ruin to the crops. 
brings ruin to the health. He does all these things to his Old Testament people in order to bring them low that they might return to the Lord their God. And God still disciplines us today by his word as it's preached to us. And at times, even through circumstances, doesn't he? Occasions of weakness he brings into our lives. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, the writer of Hebrews says. But it produces the fruit of holiness. And God wants to lead us back. Wants us to see where we have strayed and wandered. And wants us to return that we might know forgiveness through Jesus Christ. How beautiful that temple was. Because God was saying to his people, by the way, in the next chapter, chapter 9, God will say, I heard your prayer, Solomon. I've consecrated this house. So these prayers of Solomon are not just some, some wish of Solomon. They are, they are confirmed by the Lord in the next chapter. And so God does want his house to be this house of forgiveness. And so it stands there as God's saying to his church, you can find me when you're ready to come home. I'm not off hiding from you. You don't have to go track me down somewhere. My sanctuary stands firm. When you see your sin and are ready to come back, I am there. See how good that is? The issue with the prodigal son was not that he didn't know where his father was. It was that his heart didn't want to turn back. But as soon as his heart turned back and he went back home, there was his father with open arms. And so it is this morning for us, brothers and sisters. God is not hard to find. And the problem is never, you know, I've been trying to pray to God, but he won't listen to me. That's not it. That's not true. God has set his name at this point in Jerusalem, and God has set his name now in Jesus Christ. And if you call on God through Jesus Christ, you will find him, and he will forgive you. And having received that forgiveness, then we don't live as if grace is cheap and easy. We don't say, well, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness later than it is to obey now, so I'm just going to sin now and ask for forgiveness later. No. We don't say, well, this is a great relationship. God loves to forgive and I love to sin. This works out pretty well. No. When we experience grace and we want to live for the Lord, and that covenant deposited in the ark, the law of the Lord, becomes the delight of our heart. And as Solomon prays, the Lord maintain your servant the king and maintain the people so Christ is maintaining us as our shepherd in the paths of righteousness he leads us in keeping covenant with the Lord through his grace can I fit in one more real quickly a permanent building built by a promised king as a pledge of forgiveness finally calling all people of the world last point verse 60 Solomon prays that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. And back in verses 41 to 43, when the foreigner comes and calls on you, because they're going to hear about you, Lord. And then verse 43, 43, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. The temple, Jesus said, is a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. What was God's design with this temple? Is it just about the Jews? 
No. The temple was a picture of God's intentions. And God's intention was not just to gather some Jews, but through the Jewish nation to proclaim his glory in the world that all might come to Jerusalem. And now since Pentecost, you don't have to come to Jerusalem anymore. God's temple is found wherever Christ is found among his people, wherever two or three are gathered. It would be wrong for Israel to get haughty about the temple and think we're a special people, thumb our noses at the world. No, God says you are a servant people to declare my glory to the world. Because as we see in the book of Revelation, a great assembly praising Jesus Christ, a people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The new creation will be filled with a glorious unity and diversity. People from all over the world gathered as one body. So we should be clear, God has but one people. You know, there's been a lot of talk since uh, the Hamas attack on Israel about the place of Israel, the place of the Jews. And maybe you know that there's many, many, many churches in America that are deeply affected by dispensationalism. And who believe that God has two different peoples, the Jews and the church. And that God has some special plan for the ethnic Jews to, as a nation, be saved by the Lord and to to be a dwelling in Jerusalem where Christ is going to come, they believe, and literally reign on a throne for a thousand years in Jerusalem. It saddens me. I know there's strong Christians and some great theologians who believe that. But I think you missed the point. It's one story. The nation of Israel, the temple, these were all steps along the way to the fulfillment. One people, one plan, dwelling together in one place. The new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the earth, filled with the glory of God. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of redemption. God's great plan is not a separate plan for the nation of Israel. But it's that for all who believe are now children of Abraham. One in Christ. Where God dwells forever. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word. And for making your intentions known to us. We look forward to the eternal dwelling of God among men. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly we pray. Amen.